Warning, this podcast contains adult language and is not suited for children. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Squared Circle Sit Down. My name is Joe, and thank you for joining us this week to discuss the world of professional wrestling. You can find the Squared Circle Sit Down on your podcast platform of choice, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or Stitcher. And we're also available on YouTube, where you can give us some love with a like, comment, share, or a subscription. And with that, I'm going to turn things over to the host of the sit down. He is at the Lion Knight 42 on Twitter, and he is my wrestling therapy buddy, Drake. Well, thank you, Joe. That was a delightful introduction. Since we started Square Circle Sit Down, we've kind of been following a format, and I think we're going to shake things up a little bit today. Uh, as you and I have discussed over the last few days, I had something that came to me recently, primarily concerning the WWE, but also really just the presentation of wrestling as a whole, which is the different types of, well, the different types of presentations in wrestling, and specifically the differences between a stage show presentation and a live show presentation. Okay. And my first question to that is, can you explain to me what you mean? Like, what's the difference? What's the difference between a stage show presentation and a, a crowd show yes, presentation? Sure. So with the stage show presentation, I'm referring more to what the WWE has been going for uh, a lot more recently, but also for quite a while, where it's this sort of concept where the crowd is not really your primary aim uh, as far as where your product is being presented. Your titles are kind of being treated like props. They're not about being the most prestigious and you don't really have to protect them in the same ways because it's it's less about them and more about the characters who I would argue are also props in in you know the case of the talent both how they're being treated now which we can get into and how the characters that they portray are being presented and the audience as well in how they've sort of uh become extras in their own right where we have a lot more of the piped-in crowd music, although we've had that before. It's definitely a lot more often now, and during the pandemic, when we had people on screens, where there was quite literally signs for cheering, booing, thumbs up, thumbs down, and what have you. Whereas with a crowd show, uh, you get an experience that's geared more towards the audience and attendance. Your goal is to create a situation through the content you provide where the audience reacts hopefully organically to the people being presented to them as legitimate athletes instead of as these larger-than-life characters most if not all of the time and the titles are treated as though they are a lot more uh, important and you kind of get this concept overall where the show is made to be a sports program that exists within our world versus a television show that you're watching about something else happening like a sitcom versus uh a, a sport okay yeah because i was thinking when you mentioned like piping and crowd noise that's like a laugh track on a sitcom or it's filmed in front of a live studio audience but they're being told when to applaud when to laugh when to cheer something like that Whereas if you go to a boxing event or an MMA event or something like obviously what's happening is going to elicit a crowd response, but they're not doing it 
specifically to say, hey, right now is when the crowd is going to cheer. Obviously, there are moments when the crowd is going to cheer if somebody wins or loses or something big happens, but it's not the only reason why that's happening. Which I think lends itself to the titles being props versus the titles being more prestigious in a certain way where if you're doing something like in MMA, if you're fighting for a title, you're fighting for a title. You don't care whether necessarily the crowd is going to cheer or boo you. Now, the crowd may cheer or boo you winning or losing that title, but that title is what you're doing it for. Whereas on the opposite side of that, or the counterpoint, let's not necessarily say they're opposites, but for if if you had a wrestling match on a sitcom, you would tell the audience whether or not to cheer or boo at certain points of the wrestling match. Right, am I on the same page as you? Oh, yeah, 100%. That's exactly what I'm trying to say, yeah. So I think I think there's a lot to really uh, unravel here and, and really break down to look at because I think there are pros and cons, definitely. And that's not to say that companies that implement any one of these styles are inherently better than others or that any of these styles are inherently better. But I think that's definitely something worth having this discussion about today. Well, the question that I would have to you is this isn't just a conversation of saying WWE does one of these and AEW does the other. Because based on this, I think AEW does a bit of both, uh, and I think they do both pretty well. I'm inherently geared more toward the character side of storytelling. I've always been invested in wrestling because of characters. They are this the device by which these stories are told. It's about character versus character, characters having conflict with one another. So... I've always been geared more toward that type of storytelling. I think maybe the issue that a lot of people tend to have with WWE more recently is they seem to be phoning it in in terms of doing that type of storytelling. Whereas AEW, which leans more toward the wrestling is a sport, wrestling is something that we are portraying as being a legitimate athletic thing, they're leaning into it in such a way that they can still tell stories with these characters, but in enough of a way that it's done with more TLC, so to speak, and not tables, ladders, and chairs, actual tender love and care, where they care about how these stories are being told and the bell-to-bell action is how they're telling it. So to start with your first point, actually, uh, I don't, think that WWE and AEW are opposite ends, kind of like you said. I think a better way to to create, if we had to, a scale would be to put WWE on one side and then uh, New Japan on the other and have AEW fall somewhere in between. Because you're right, they do do both. Uh, And regardless of the WWE phoning it in, not phoning it in, there is still a distinctive difference to the way that they generate their content versus the way AEW generates its content versus the way New Japan does it, right? Uh, so for WWE, uh, it very much feels like it is a show about a show about wrestling, right? You are watching a world, you are watching a kayfabe production of a show for a kayfabe home viewer audience that exists outside of our world in their world in their world, right? I, I understand that's a little bit confusing. 
it's kind of how uh, there's been this talk, in, especially in the last, like, let's say seven, eight, nine, maybe even ten years now, about the kayfabe outside of kayfabe, right? We've taken it another step further. And in doing so, WWE has created the WWE Universe, which is the the audience that I would argue doesn't really exist, but that their show is aimed to in their show's kayfabe. And then we are the viewers watching the show about all of that. Whereas with New Japan, you have a much more con- uh, uh, much stronger concept of wrestling as a sport if it were an actual sport that existed here in our universe. If wrestling was a, a real sport, this is what it would be. And so it's presented that way. I don't think that it necessarily sacrifices characters, but it definitely changes the way that the characters are presented. And it it can remove... It, it can do two... There are two things it does that are kind of unfortunate. It can remove some of that immediate conflict between people, and it means that it's a lot harder for new people to get into because, sure, you can sit down and watch 10, 15, even 20 New Japan shows in a row and be like, this is phenomenal wrestling. All, all of this is great. But who are these people and why do I care about them, right? And even with the character work that they do on that show, there's it's so easy to be like, well, unless I'm also watching all of the post-show interviews and unless I'm, you know, following guys on Twitter and unless I'm, I'm following Kevin Kelly and checking their website a bunch, there's going to be times where you just miss stuff and also you have to do history research. Well, because they're presenting it like a sport. Right. And for a lot of things, like if you watch, you know, whatever sport you watch and just follow their games for an entire season or even multiple seasons, you don't necessarily know anything about the players. They may tell you things on commentary or something like that, but they're not necessarily going to tell you hey, this person is a fan of this, or they do this for a living. Well, obviously, they play sports for a living. But before that, they didn't go to college for blah, 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 and have these friends and fall into these social circles and all that. You get stats most of the time, and you care about how they perform. So WWE is, as you said, the show about a wrestling show. And then you would have New Japan, which is not a show at all really it's a it's presented as if you are watching a live sport and then you have in the middle you have aw which just is it it's not a show about a wrestling show it's just a wrestling show so it's like each one is like one step removed from the other i like i think that's kind of the best way i could put it oh absolutely yeah oh absolutely well that's that's the thing with aew is they're a show that is you watching a New Japan show, right? They're they're tongue in cheek. They're the understanding that pro wrestling is a is a kayfabe experience, and we know that, and you know that. So together, we can now put on a wrestling show in quotations, as long as we both kind of understand what's going on here, and so we can have characters who are you know bigger than just being athletes. And we can have storylines and and driving forces that are like, you know, if you sign up with the inner circle, we're going to give you this awesome new car. And, you know, or like, uh, uh, we're going to fight in a football stadium. Just, just to, just to pull two off the top of my head. And it can work because they still provide all of the 
sport content that they're trying to say is the most relevant thing in the company while also providing those characters. And I think that it's also really interesting now looking back at that as we enter the third year of AEW where when when this was and we I think we've talked about this on the podcast before where when they first started like when they first announced themselves there was this huge push from them that you know wins and losses are going to be relevant we're very much going to be a sports based show and that's true in the kayfabe of all elite wrestling and they do a really good job of keep of like maintaining that kayfabe but also you see things that are very not sports-based, like what we've just discussed and plenty else. Yeah, like Cody being on fire or things like that, or people talking about legitimate things that would murder someone. So, yeah, I, I get that. Whereas in New Japan, it's, hey, this type of behavior happens in the world of wrestling as a sport. These people are violent individuals who do certain things, and some play by the rules and some don't, and... Sometimes it goes behind the referee's back, and there's nothing we can do about it because the referee is the law in the ring. Except for the one time Suzuki murdered a cameraman. Well, sucks to be that cameraman. I don't know what to tell you. Agreed. So, I think that the the interesting part about it from the WWE standpoint is, and here's something else I think we've touched on before, they don't treat their championships like they're these huge prestigious things except when it's relevant to do so right the titles aren't protected the characters are and i think that that's a really important piece of what makes their product what it is uh for good or bad i'm really not not trying to infer in either direction here but sometimes it works really well where you'll see you know the guy does look more legitimate for having the belt around his waist um, and, and that can even work for weaker title reigns, although not everyone will agree with that. But then there are other times where it's like, okay, well, like with Eddie Guerrero, which is a great example of a guy who, you know, everyone really wanted to see get there. He'd been working his ass off for a long time. Fans have loved him for years leading up to that run. And so when he finally got the title, it meant a lot, even though the title may or may not have been super relevant, although it had a fantastic run that in the last years leading up to that. But even if it hadn't, it wouldn't have really mattered because what mattered was Eddie winning it. Uh, like Brian winning it is another great example, uh, Daniel Bryan, mm -hmm. where it didn't matter that we had had this like painful Randy Orton reign and the Batista interference and the authority thing that was already sort of mind-numbing and devaluing the title at almost every turn. But when Brian won it because of the way that they positioned him, regardless of desire to do so, it was more relevant than if it had just been like Brian beats Triple H that year, right? It, it means more. On the inverse, you can also have things where you have a guy like Brock Lesnar, right? And Brock Lesnar is, for all intents and purposes, in the kayfabe of WWE from the beginning of his career back in the early 2000s to now, just this unstoppable dominating beast he's a force so you put the title on him and it doesn't matter what the title looked like beforehand he elevates that belt and i i think that it provides that opportunity uh but you know uh, it's gonna rub different people different ways and that's completely understandable because even for me for a long time as a new japan guy right i was a huge new japan fan i still am 
you have this thing where the title is sacred, the title is sacred, the title is sacred. Maybe not so much anymore, but the title means so much. So you look at a company like WWE and go, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, not to say that even as a prop, you should ever be throwing your titles on the floor, but whatever. Yeah, well, I personally look at titles, and I have for a very long time, speaking of that Eddie Guerrero title reign, why that was such a big deal was because we were already at the point of this is scripted. This is something where the WWE in particular treats that one particular title, the WWE championship with such a reverence that only select people ever get to have a title ring. So if you do get picked to have a title ring, if you get scripted to have a title ring, that's a big deal because you're in the history books now in a way that some people who are legends never got to do that and so for eddie to get to that point meant that oh he was like selected to hit that level and that was a big deal to especially fans of eddie guerrero for numerous reasons i personally look at titles like that and all titles as almost like a stock where it it kind of waxes and wanes it goes back and forth up and down based on how it's treated how it's booked who's holding it, why, for how long, you know, is it on the show? Is it defended with any type of, I don't know, energy? Where is it? Is it booked? Is it on a pre-show? Is it never even on a pay-per-view? Is it even defended at all? Like, you know, and you can look at all the different titles and they've gone up to down, back and forth for years. And the New Japan current world title is probably at the lowest it's been in the last decade because of what has happened recently, the switch of the design, which is something that generally takes stock away from a title um, and how it's had to be kind of hot potatoed a little bit because of injuries, which is another thing that takes stock away from a title. And you can look at that as like a title lineage thing, which people from other sports like boxing and MMA could speak to that. But these are important things for titles and going back further and further, you can see different points in time in history where titles were more props versus titles had really high stock. And there's the age old saying of did the title make the guy or did the guy make the title? And I think it varies a lot. And generally when the title stock is very high, you can have those moments of the title makes the guy. And when the title stock is much lower, that's usually when it's the guy makes the title, you know, pulls it back up. And then there's moments where they're both really high at the same time and both really low at the same time and back and forth. So, yeah, I, I can see that. But I, I don't know where you want to go with this next, but there are so many different points in history where depending upon where you want to look for WWE especially because they have such a so many titles such a, or a history of these moments of titles being treated with such reverence versus such disrespect that you could go anywhere with this but you know where do you want to go with this well i think the first thing that is worth mentioning is looking back because like you said a lot of it is based on the history of the title is the question of where is the first time that we can go back to and look at it and go okay well this was a really good moment of the title is a prop instead of being this huge prestigious thing that is only meant for the best of the best. And for me, 
it has to be the Montreal screw job. It's it's Brett leaving leaving the company after getting screwed out of the title and the subsequent you know storylines that followed the belt after that for at least for a while. That's a fair point because that's one of the ones where do obviously people know that that was a title match, but when people talk about it, it's not talked about because it was a title match. It's talked about because of the circumstances of the veil being lifted of what the hell is going on. The live crowd doesn't know what's going on. The Maybe the people involved don't know what's going on, depending upon who you ask. And that's something that's such, it's a landmark moment in professional wrestling history. It's always going to be talked about. It's always going to be referenced. It's a big deal. But yeah, that is something where I maybe push back a little bit because of the circumstances in at the time, it was a thing where we can't let this title be devalued. So that's why this happened. So there's a little bit of, we need to keep the title lineage. We need to keep the reverence intact for the title, especially considering like, you know, Alundra Blaze, the women's championship and all that stuff at WCW. Hmm. But still, I agree with you that there is like a big piece of that moment in particular that is about wrestling is a scripted show and it's not about the title itself it's about money and it's about brand loyalty and recognition it's about contract disputes and it's about people and their egos and these are all things that are real in sports sometimes but the sport itself will keep trucking along without those things and if you devalue a major championship in a sport, it's going to reflect badly on the sport as a whole. And that is something that does also translate to professional wrestling. Yeah, and I would argue that if you wanted to go back before then, you could do that too to maybe, uh, ironically, also involving Shawn Michaels, I would say the Shawn Michaels loses his smile moment. Oh, um, that's fair. Another one of those moments where maybe not if you're just watching it on TV, but... Like when knowing the story behind it, especially now in like retrospect, it it's one of those moments where it's very much this guy has made this decision that his he values himself more than the title, which could have been handled in a lot of different ways, but it wasn't. It was almost very specifically handled in a way where it was okay. Well, there are a thousand ways you could write me off TV, but I don't want that. I want to make it very clear that I value me more than this belt. Okay, here you go. And I, I think that's another one of those points, which, you know, you know is kind of in the, in the lead up. But I think that's another moment where people, you know, have to have to see that title kind of drop a couple of steps. Yeah. And before that, even like going back to Andre and Hogan with the whole Andre beats Hogan via, you know, referee screw job. But also, he tries to sell the title to the Million Dollar Man, and then the title gets held up, and they have to have a tournament for it and stuff. I understand it's a big storyline, but the idea that you can buy that title, you know, you can buy a title reign at all, and I understand they explicitly did that to make it a thing of, no, you can't. That's against the rules. But the idea it was still out there of nobody in sports is going to look and say, like, hey, yeah, I could buy a championship if I want to. I don't mean, like, 
pay a team that is clearly better than any other team. I mean, specifically, they just walk into the championship finals and say, yeah, I know, I know you earned it, you won it, but like, I'll give you a billion dollars. Just hand me the trophy. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. The, the only uh, argument I would make to that is if you look at where wrestling was back then and the way that people viewed it, and a character like Hulk Hogan especially, who, you know, we will not spend too much time on for obvious reasons. His his fame at the time was completely unparalleled. Uh, nothing like it had been seen before, or I would argue maybe even since within the confines of a wrestling character. But it was really hard to devalue that title strictly because of something that would, if it was done today, would absolutely destroy a lot of the prestige of it, is... He didn't actually get beat. They didn't let the guy buy the title. And, you know, so instead of it being this thing where it sort of, like, dropped a couple of steps, for for me at least, it was the situation where it's like, okay, but we know that this is so meaningful because they wouldn't let him do this. And now, inevitably, you know, Hogan's going to get it again. And as soon as he does, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's this huge moment of, of you know, payoff and if you look at that it's still like they didn't do something like that again until 10 years later yeah. you know you're, you're looking at the era of the montreal screwjob and sean losing his smile and title vacations and things like that happening a decade after that so you have a good period of time where you are keeping that title lineage intact you have a big tournament with every big star on the roster on it to try to crown a new champion. You run back the Hogan-Andre match again. You you try to do all of these things, and you still don't let the guy who tried to be, buy the title win the title. Yeah. So all things considered, I think that's still one of those, hey, you had an idea here, and you executed the idea well. And could they have done better? Probably. But at that time, especially for what people were expecting – they got what they paid for. Yeah. The bad guy was a devious bad guy who did a devious bad guy thing. And a good guy came out on top. That's what that era was. I don't know if you want to try to put another pin in this somewhere. Because, again, what I said before with Eddie Guerrero, by that point in time, the veil is lifted. We know that they're picking their guy. Sure. Actually, uh, so two things. One, I'm not going to derail the conversation, but I feel the need after having had that conversation to just put this out there. Fuck Hulk Hogan. And and two, Eddie Guerrero is actually a really good thing to have been brought up because the guy who beat Eddie Guerrero is another great example of this, in my opinion, where, you know, you had JBL who arguably a number of years beforehand was supposed to get a push and it never happened for a number of reasons. It doesn't matter. But here we are primed for this character who i mean is 2021 fox's wet dream but um is is absolutely this guy who hasn't put on uh to to use the phrase five star matches who isn't really a competitor just come in win the match in an incredibly questionable way and then begin this reign of it doesn't matter if it's good heat. It doesn't matter if it's bad heat. It doesn't matter if the crowd hates him because he's a bad person or because he's a bad guy. At the end of the day, they're getting the heat they're getting, and that's all that mattered. And it was arguably executed pretty well, uh, regardless of 
some of the incredibly dated decisions they made for those storylines at the time and whatnot. But and we talked about this, I think, last week or two weeks ago with JBL, where it was so, so difficult not to hate him. And that was a a result of them making the decision to go, okay, the title is a prop that we are going to use to elicit a reaction for this character. And that will be the reaction, regardless of who should or shouldn't be the top guy. Because realistically, there were a number of other talent they could have gone with, uh, face or heel, who could have done the same, if not better. My question to you, my question to you really quickly, is let's go back to that saying. For JBL... Did JBL make the title, or did the title make JBL? Okay, so, and, you know, I'm going to say a special circumstance, but that's going to maybe come up a number of times here, because JBL, I don't think, put any value in the title while he held it, but he put so much value on the title in how he lost it, right? The the loss to John Cena, his, like, crowning moment the the rise to be a main eventer is such an important part of wrestling history uh obviously now but even back then where it was this thing that that was it it gave the title so much value based on here's a guy who for for a while i've been i've been re-watching uh the old smackdowns and for a while, it's really rough because they didn't boo him when he was a heel because he was a heel. They booed him because it was a fucking terrible gimmick. And then, you know, they turn him face and they do the whole thing with the big show. And he just kind of like rocked that whole year, just sort of pulling the audience in. And it got to the point where, you know, like we talked about with Eddie and we talked about with Brian, it's not necessarily because the title felt prestigious, but because of the circumstances being what they were it was relevant, and arguably in a way that, unless he was over on Raw beating Triple H for the title, you weren't going to get otherwise. Mm -hmm. Okay, see, I'm inclined to agree with you. If I had to label it, I would say the title made JBL when he won it, and JBL made the title by the end of his reign. Okay. He passed it by. Like, that era is one where that title was very prestigious. The stock in it was very high. You're going Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar... Eddie Guerrero, okay, JBL, then John Cena. And that is some huge names for WWE in that time period. I would interrupt you just for one second to add the big show to that list, only because that was another huge career resurgence for him, where he had been dawdling for a while beforehand, came over to SmackDown, and was almost immediately like a huge deal. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And I think that's why in that era, I would say that title made Kurt Angle back that level he it made the big show back to that level it made Brock Lesnar because without it who is he it made Eddie Guerrero because Eddie we knew Eddie was that good but it was this thing that as we just talked about of we know now that they see you the way we see you you know this is the crown to you like we get it and then of course it made John Cena so I couldn't say that JBL's stock is higher than any of those people. So yeah, it made JBL, but by the end of it, yeah, JBL was putting stock into that title. It was an investment. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And because my follow-up question to that is something we also talked about last week of, this is an easy one. Like I'll tee it up for you of like, did honky talk man make the IC title or did the title make the honky talk man? Uh, no, 
comment. <laughs> but I mean, that's my thing. Like, you yeah. know, you can have the title go on a guy who clearly is beneath it. Yeah. And then he does something with it. No, absolutely. And, and you get to the end of it where it's like, Honky Tonk Man, I see title. You're like, well, clearly I see title over Honky Tonk Man. And by the end of it, it's like, wait, the title is now at the Ultimate Warriors level. What? Yeah, yeah. Which was which was such a huge, oh, another huge moment in history. And I think there's kind of a trend of of the way that that works, right? That we see, uh, which unfortunately, and, and this goes to what we brought up earlier, doesn't feel as true anymore. When you look at a lot of the titles, that, and, and I promise this isn't going to be the lead-in. We haven't tricked you. This isn't the lead-in to shitting on the WWE for 30 minutes. No, but, I promise I will be positive about this topic. Yeah, but when you look at the way that these titles are often treated now, you kind of see guys struggling to create relevancy in them. I'd go back to looking at, like, Kevin Owens when he was the champion couldn't get a clean win despite the fact that you know everyone understood by that point that Kevin Owens was a, a legitimate contender who could and had had a number of matches that were big matches that he, he could have just won but they didn't put that stock in him and you saw a lot of situations where they kind of panicked buttoned right they brought back Goldberg and they brought back Brock and they created situations where they could go okay well we're going to default to putting titles on the guys who we know are like the apex of the company for the sake of, you know, putting eyes there. Even even though they had arguably the talent that could have elevated those titles back again. Which you saw a lot with the women's division. The women's division is a great example of the opposite. Where kind of, e even if you, you know, get sick of Charlotte Flair, which is perfectly reasonable... The reality was you had, you know, the four horsewomen, Becky, Charlotte, Bailey, and Sasha. And then the talent that surrounded them was a pretty reasonable pool of talent, too, where you constantly got these really good matches and you had these women who very much seemed like they were at the top of their sport. And even if maybe you got sick of watching Sasha versus Charlotte after the 30th one, you still did have this feeling of value to the women's titles, which kind of has persisted from then until now especially with you know Rhonda came in and there was a lot of concern about her being another Brock but she turned out not really to be another Brock even though she was booked very strongly uh, but but it was a lot more believable in that they didn't completely bury the talent around her and in, in doing so they kept the title looking strong so when when like you know Becky went, won that belt it didn't feel like she had to, by winning that belt, put value back into it. It was this really good summation of both the story of Becky Lynch that we have been yelling for for years up until that point and a title that, that mattered being put around her waist. Yeah, and the WWE Women's Division is one of the simultaneously best and worked, worst booked divisions in the world right now over the last, let's say, five years. It's one where you have some of the hottest characters in any division, uh, you know, man, woman, otherwise, doesn't matter. And yet, you still have, like, quality matches, too. But yet, it, it also is that thing of, it's the one where we just had the titles thrown on the floor because they couldn't get something right. They couldn't make it work. So it, it's a tricky situation with that where I'm inclined to agree with you on, 
on all the points you made where the stock is high in the titles because the division itself is so good. The quality is there. I was thinking the other day, just off the top of my head, you have somebody like Rhea Ripley now who is a top 10, let's say, let's be fair, maybe eight talent, five, sure. Yeah, I mean, I love her. She's easily top five for me. I'm just saying, depending upon who you are, if she's higher or lower. Fair. In the WWE, she's a top 10 easily. Top five, probably. Maybe top one for some people. That's fine. But the thing is, you can have that conversation because they have so many people. They have the four horsewomen. They have Asuka. They have uh, Alexa, even, for some people, is like a top person. They have Bianca. Bianca. Yeah, and uh, that's not even counting the people they have in NXT. So you have all those people and then you turn around and you look and you're like, well, where does Rhea fit in? And you could have the conversation about where. So the fact that she's not champion all the time is because there are other people who can be champion. That's fair. You take Rhea Ripley and put her in another company. She's number one, lowest number three. And that's just to say like the, the talent disparity that these companies have. So when the WWE has two women's world titles and women's tag team championships and an NXT women's championship and an NXT women's tag titles, it's because there's roster depth. So if there's any quality to the titles, it is because the divisions are so deep. The reason why going backward a bit for like the attitude era, the world title got hot potatoed like crazy so many different there there were so many title changes in the years like 98 99 2000 more than probably any other year in the wwe history why because they had so many people at the top of that division that they just kept adding legitimacy to the people by making them world champion over and over again and was it the best no did it devalue the title a bit yeah definitely it dropped the stock in it, but the stock was so high going into it that it could afford to, you know, lose a few shares and give it out to the people. So you could have Stone Cold and The Rock and Triple H and Mankind and The Big Show and then later Chris Jericho and stuff like that all up there at that same level. And I think the women's championships in WWE, the main roster too, have done that at now for several talents in those divisions oh, yeah. and this is still pretty high it's not as high as it was anymore but it's still up there it, they're two of the most i don't i don't know if they're more prestigious than the wwe title but they're up there they're as high as i think they can be probably for you know what they are and how they're booked in the company the fact that they got to main event wrestlemania was such a big deal that that I think gave it a lot more value than some people will give it credit for. So going back to uh, something you you enjoy referencing often, the the great dropping of the women's championships, uh, I think that that was still pretty damaging. But uh, luckily, like you said, they have an incredible roster. They have an incredible division of uh, women's wrestlers who can go out there and put on these very very strong matches. And keep the title valued because of that. And I think that that's kind of how it sprung back. Yeah, absolutely. I will also say that it is almost a separation from the rest of their product. Not in that it's good content. 
but in that it is more about what you see in the ring than the storyline surrounding it. WWE don't do a fantastic job of creating these women characters. They they fall into a lot of the old tropes that I'd argue are very played out, unnecessary, and, and don't really uh, create the investment. But that happens anyway because of the talent we see bell to bell, which kind of leads me into the next thing that I wanted to bring up about this, which is what the focus of a uh, stage show is as a product, which to me, and I touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but to me is, as we see with WWE, a lot less about what happens in the ring. The wrestling for a lot of the WWE is kind of the backseat, right? That's not what, what we're focusing on. We focus on the interpersonal relationships between these larger-than-life superstars, which is a very important term. They spent a long time pushing that, and it's become apparent why, right? As we see the loss of interaction with the audience and fans, and as we see them becoming, instead of, you know, the beer-drinking, don't-take-any-bullshit guy from Texas, you've got the incredibly thinly-veiled, so-high-he-doesn't-really-know-what's-going-on bro. You've got a character, a superstar like Roman Reigns, who is a legitimate television villain. He's not really a wrestler. He happens to exist in a wrestling world and is a very stereotypical, not in a bad way, but a very stereotypical, like, big bad Uh, which is another thing they've been doing for a long time, and I think that that's important to look at for how this is presented, right? They want these superstars that exist for the sake of the universe, and I'm using these buzzwords on purpose, but they want these superstars for the sake of the universe so that the stories that they're telling are these, hopefully, compelling dramas, right? Like this whole... I know I'm going to probably trigger you a little bit. Like this whole thing with, with Austin Theory and the egg. Which, look, Austin Theory is a, is a good talent. He puts on solid matches. He has charming charisma. But instead of putting him in the ring and, and letting him kind of do what AEW does with Sammy Guevara, where, yeah, he's got his cute little bits, but also he's so charismatic in the ring, and that's where we learn to love him. They do the opposite with Austin Theory. His matches are generally relatively short. He gets a little bit of a showcase, which is kind of the style that they do. And then the rest of him is developed, presented, and and refined in the back. Like, you know, stealing the egg to take a selfie and kind of getting this weird Vince McMahon mentorship. It's way more about the storyline than it is about the matches. And even when there's story in the matches, it's kind of secondary, with the exception of you know, your major payoff events. Yeah, and this is where I'll be positive. Not about Austin Theory and the egg, (laughs) but about WWE as a whole. This is the reason why I've watched WWE for such a long time. I get invested in the stories. I like the presentation of the characters. I enjoy entrance themes. I enjoy the pyrotechnics. I enjoy the, the flash, the flare, the pomp and circumstance. The, the light shows, 
things like that. They're, ooh, shiny. I like it. I get it. And I enjoy the athleticism too, but it's one of the reasons why I tend to sway away from some of the spot fest matches because I don't care about that stuff because it doesn't add to the story so much. It's just, okay, you're doing this thing to show off. That's awesome. And I appreciate your athleticism. Please be safe. But I'm more in it for what is happening to get us from point A to point B. Are you telling me a story in the ring? The best matches do. And they are additive to the stuff that happens outside the ring. So outside the ring, you're telling me why you're getting into the ring. And then you get in the ring and you tell me the story of what happens in the ring. And then the match ends and maybe there's more to the story or maybe it ends. And either way, like we've talked about AEW and Full Gear and Adam Page and Kenny Omega. That is something that has been an outside the ring story and an inside the ring story on again, off again, on again, off again, putting all the puzzle pieces together until we got to this moment. And then this story ended, the chapter ended, the act ended, right? Then it becomes, well, what happens next? I'm excited because you're going to tell me a new story. And now you're telling me Brian Danielson and Hangman Adam Page. That's a new story. Cool. Let's go. I like it. WWE does it in its own way and has been doing it for decades. And I've loved so much of it. Do they tell me stories that I want nothing to do with? Absolutely. And I think so many wrestling fans can point to them over and over again. And when things get bad, they get horribly bad. But when they're good, they're great. And I can point to great storylines from WWE in recent years. Kofi Kingston winning the WWE Championship at WrestleMania from Daniel Bryan is a story that I love. It's one of my favorite wrestling moments of the last several years, probably the last 10 years even. I enjoyed that moment. I enjoyed lots of the moments at that WrestleMania. Why? Because they put so much into those stories between the matches that made me want to see it in the promos, the hype videos, the mic segments, the interviews, all these different things that they put together. And yeah, the matches too. It's usually the union of both. And if I had to say like in a 51-49% thing, I generally side to the outside of the ring stuff. That's usually where I, I lean. But if you don't have the in the ring stuff, then it's just 51% that's not enough and i feel like that's one of the things that's been losing me with wwe more recently it feels like both sides are lacking so it's not even a 50 50 thing it's like 25 and 25 and i'm like well you're not even getting to the halfway point on either side so why do i care yeah and i think that's a, a very reasonable uh concern for that company and that brings me to uh the next part of, of this which is the talent as props so I would argue that a big part of the problem right now with this company, and again, don't worry, we're not going to start trashing them. Last time I say it, I promise. I think one of the big problems with this company is the lack of ability for fans to invest in people. And some of that comes from, you know, the very unrecent string of releases that they've done over the last two years. And more than that, the people who have been getting released. And even beyond that, and this goes back more than two years, the lack of consistency like you said when we talked about Braun Breaker versus Tommaso Ciampa where it's the half steps 
it's hard to invest in guys or in storylines when it's very possible that in two weeks it will have been forgotten or it will have been blown off for whatever is supposed to happen next. And a good example of that is like Roman Reigns and Finn Balor, right? So you had a lot of... I will say that the Roman Reigns-Finn Balor buildup was shorter than it should have been, but I was thoroughly sports entertained for a lot of that buildup. It felt very good. It did. It felt good. Watching Finn kind of get to be... Uh, uh, I won't go so far as to say the prince again, but be kind of the NXT character he cultivated on his return to NXT, coming back here and being like, well, since my return, I have not gotten a single fair shake. Roman, you talk a big game, but what do you want to do? And Roman almost kind of ducking him, but not exactly in that way that Roman does sometimes, where he's like, yeah, I could beat you, but why? And then finally having that match, and it was really exciting. And then he busts out the demon, which was really cool. Uh, in retrospect, maybe didn't need to happen, but he busts out the demon. And then we get the ending we got, where the, the top rope just snaps, and he falls. And it wasn't like it was it was an actual technical issue, because before that happened, his music played, and the lights did the red blinky thing. And then the rope snaps, he falls, Roman beats him, and then... It's over. We do the draft, right? But it is never touched on or explained. It very much felt like even when they gave us a good story, they didn't care enough to write their way out of it. They just went deus ex machina and then we move on, which is always the worst part of storytelling, right? And it's an extra shame when you have something like Roman Reigns where this is, as a, as a superstar, as a, as a the guy is probably one of the best stories they've told in a long time. But with the exception of guys like Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar, the people who you know beyond a shadow of Randy Orton will not be going anywhere. It's hard to invest in the younger talent because look at a guy like Keith Lee where this this man was a home run. Everything they needed from him, they got. The crowd was completely behind him. He got the rub facing off with like Lesnar and Reigns and he was he felt very much like he was being positioned to be one of the top guys and then unfortunately he got sick and then they started bringing him back and they were prepping for it and they were prepping for it and then he's gone and it's like well when you see guys like that when you guys see guys like Bray Wyatt um who I'm going to talk about more in a second because of his role in this particular situation when you see guys like that hit row who are who feel like they're they're so perfectly made for this kind of storytelling and this kind of presentation where they're just like eh, but we're going to give up on you it it becomes really hard to invest uh, yeah go ahead and yeah, then after I, that I, I want to talk about Bray Wyatt I think this will tie perfectly into Bray Wyatt because this is something that a lot of people complain about online and complaining I'm going to say it, it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing but I just want people to understand what the people who really understand what they're saying when they make this complaint is WWE does not commit to long-term storytelling anymore. And it's not meaning like, Oh, they're not doing this three year long hangman, Adam page, Kenny Omega setup thing. No, no, no. It's WWE selectively brings up details from the past when it's convenient for them to do so and forgets and act like you're supposed to have forgotten when it's not convenient. 
So when somebody goes into a matchup and Michael Cole says, we've never seen something like that before, and it literally has happened before. That exact moment has happened before if a fan has watched for a year. They've seen that. And it's something that in the storytelling and the pieces of these characters, the characters remember doing these things. They're just not allowed to remember them because WWE is scripting the storyline. So therefore, WWE needs you to be an idiot in this moment. WWE needs you to forget in this moment. That's that's the... Because remember, that's not for us. That's for their yeah. kayfabe audience who doesn't exactly. remember it. Yeah, and because their kayfabe audience is who they need their kayfabe audience to be in that moment. And that's the big issue here. So long-term storytelling isn't a matter of like, oh, well, you know, three years later, they're going to pay off this thing. It could be, but it could also be that, you know, a month from now, this character is going to be involved with a different character. And instead of doing, you know, this one thing, they're going to do another thing because they've learned something or they've adapted or they've changed. Things have shifted because these characters are malleable. They're dynamic. They're not just like these static images that are exactly, you know, copy paste into new scenario. And that's what people tend to mean with the long-term storytelling. It's like, why aren't these characters growing and changing? Oh, it's because you just want to have like this statue that you can insert. It's like an action figure, which is very appropriate for wrestling. Like that you could just take and put into a new slot over and over again. You only change them when you need to change them. They're not changing because of the things that are actually happening. Whereas other companies tend to tell stories along the lines of like, well, and not all the time. It's not always these big sweeping things, but people who get injured stay injured for a set amount of time that generally makes sense. In WWE, how often do you see somebody gets injured? It lasts till the pay-per-view payoff match. Then the very next night, they're perfectly fine. Why? Because that storyline's over. We don't need you to be injured anymore. Or they got eaten by zombies. Yeah, exactly. Like, so much stuff like that, which you could say it's stupid or ridiculous or whatever you want to call it. It's the fact that people are watching this and they're going to try to watch again. And then you're going to look at them and say, like, well, yeah, you don't remember that thing? No, you don't. No, you don't. It's over. And why I think this ties in so perfectly to Bray Wyatt because Bray Wyatt was a guy who it reinvented himself multiple times, but also was a master of, hey, I'm telling not just like one set story that's going to last in an episode and be self-contained. You're taking a ride with me. And, you know, come on, hop in, because this is going to be a long ride and all the pieces are going to pay off. So, and this is this is exactly what I wanted to get into. And also, hop in, because this is going to be a long ride. But this is going to be a payoff. So, <laughs> oh, we're back on the you. timer. I'm okay. you. Right. So, I, I think that it's really important, specifically for Bray Wyatt, for us to go back almost to the beginning. So, you've got this guy who so perfectly fits everything that the company wants their storytelling to be. He is a guy who doesn't require an amazing in-ring match, whose talent between bells is almost, in, not, nothing against the guy, is almost entirely about storytelling through action 
and not wrestling. You've got this guy who can cut these chilling promos, who knows how to get the reaction from the audience that he wants, that the company wants. And so you introduce him in something we haven't really done in a long time and maybe really, I won't say ever, because we did have like, you know, Waylon Mercy, but in a long time and, and not for a lot of the audience that's experiencing it, right? And you start running the, the promos with, you know, them in the swamp, what I like to call Swamp Daddy Wyatt, right? Where we're doing the follow the buzzards and we're talking about bringing people home and how they're the sheep. And it's, it's these just really powerful promos that immediately present him a, as this incredibly unique character and B as a credible threat. This is a guy who, if you had told me when he first debuted that they were going to do one of the things that again, they hadn't done in a while where they were like, this is the bad guy. This is the story we're going to be telling moving forward is this is the bad guy. I would I would have bought it hook, line, and sinker. And as time progressed, you know, he, he did. He created a legitimacy for himself, not necessarily through beating everyone, but because the character was who they were. And he had this air about him that made him almost completely bulletproof because he could take some of those big losses and it wouldn't matter because at the end of the day, yeah, he lost the match, but look at the effect he's had on them. More than that, look at the effect he's had on you, right? He he was able to, even though he didn't have that audience participation, even though he was a superstar, he could reach out through the screen and, and get to you and, and touch you in ways that a lot of the talent couldn't and a lot of the characters didn't. And it was almost like a car crash where it was really hard not to just watch in awe. Then we had the inevitable growth of the character into the, the what was it, the Eater of Worlds, right? Where there was a very distinct change between the two. And, and the growth was there the entire time. It wasn't like, like you said, with a lot of characters where they're a statue and we've slotted them in and then eventually we'll pull that out and we'll put another one in. He did such a good job of growing himself into that person and becoming someone who, instead of just being the outspoken, you know, your world is a lie guy, became this force that went, oh, yeah, well, I'm a superstar. I am larger than life. I am bigger than you. I am I'm the eater of worlds. I consume. I command the space around me. Who cares if I lose? And for a while that was fine. But and I won't do that thing that everyone does where you blame John Cena for it. But it was one of a number of nails in the coffin where they went and I've said this to you many times. Bray Wyatt is bulletproof. We can have him take a thousand losses, but the moment he wins, we're still hot. And the problem is, they would have been right maybe eight out of ten times. But because of the character that, that they and he had developed, that couldn't be true. Because he had to remain larger than life. And then you had the thing with him and The Undertaker, 
which was realistically this great opportunity for them to finally be like, okay, well, this is after the streak has been broken, right? There is no need for Undertaker to win. There's no upside to it, really. And the upside to Wyatt winning this match is everything he's been saying now holds true because of the person that he beats and where he does. Doesn't do it. They don't give him the win. Okay. Well, they're telling the story they want to tell, and that's okay. But Wyatt is, at that point, now a guy who makes this transition from the larger-than-life superstar, the character who is above the wrestling ring, to kind of being a crazy guy with matted hair screaming about how he's larger than life, but always gets beat. And he, you know, he's lost his followers, which already has kind of made things peter out, and he's he no longer feels like he belongs in that space. Okay, and both he and the company recognized that and went, all right, well, it's time for us to figure something else out. So you take him off TV, and you just think about it. And I will tell you this, when they played that first promo with the doll, you had the box, right? You had the doll in the chair, the sister Abby, the, the Abby doll in the chair, and then the box, and then Mercy came out of the box that first time. It was the second time because the first time it was just the box, right? The first time it was just the box, and I was like, "Is that what? Is that a dinosaur? Uh-huh. Oh, it's a buzzard. Oh, it's a buzzard. Okay." Yeah. And I will be perfectly honest with you. I went, "Oh fuck, this Same. is this is so bad. We're fucked. We're fucked," because it it felt very much like this was going to be the first time that we got to see the WWE's take on who Bray Wyatt is instead of Bray Wyatt's take on who he is. And that's not to say that none of the problems that the character encountered were his fault. We really don't know how much of it was on any side except for what we saw in the ring. That's really the the long and short of it is I'm not going to point any fingers at this point beyond what we've seen in the ring. But, you know, it he creates this, I would say maybe the most unique character in the history of wrestling. I think I'm comfortable making that statement. Uh, if not the, it's up there. Yeah. It's like the Ripley thing. I, I don't Top care what. five at least. Definitely up there. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, there are some people who hated it. And I, I respect that. And uh, as we'll get to in a, a minute or two, there's a good reason why. But definitely one of the most unique character concepts in wrestling. And it exploded online not even just in the wrestling community which was really interesting but this was me- like a meme the the um the uh, uh the the firefly funhouse banner became a meme for a while and that was that was big and then you had the the um huskus huskus the pig when they first introduced him that was a meme outside of wrestling that was a meme for a while and that's a big deal because Outside of, like, John Cena, they had had a lot of trouble reaching to the non-wrestling community. And so you introduce this incredibly unique character, and he's so good at making it off-putting. And they're so careful about what he does and says and how he does it. And then slowly you start to kind of bleed out a little bit of 
the old Bray Wyatt. It's like, okay, cool. And then we do The Fiend. And The Fiend is another one of those concepts that feels like it's perfect for the WWE. Because, again, they they have a really good history, I feel like, with characters like that. You have guys like Mankind, guys like The Undertaker, guys like Kane. These larger-than-life characters who are maybe really only by the most basic of definitions human, but but are so much more and are supposed to be off-putting and unsettling and powerful. And so The Fiend felt exactly like that. And I'll, I'll never forget, unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch it live. I was, at a, I was at a tournament, I think, that night. But I remember we were on the way back and someone uh, texted me and was like, have you seen this? Because holy fuck and I'm like okay so we we were at a rest stop and I'm sitting outside and I pull out my phone and I look up the entrance wow and I'm like okay there's this is this is like made money this is incredible this was such a brilliant idea and it was it was great and the introduction was great and the head lantern was phenomenal and I still listen to the remix of the song. Now. It's on my Spotify in like half my playlists. I just I love it. And and you know, I love the old one too. But you just you see this evolution of what feels like a very clear, obvious growth for Bray Wyatt, for the Swamp Daddy, for the Eater of Worlds, for the crazy guy who was just spouting gibberish eventually. This made sense, and it was such a healthy way to reinvigorate this guy. And at every turn, you have this opportunity to, you know, especially after that first match where he just was an unstoppable force, just straight up was an unstoppable force. And it was like, okay, well, we're here. You have committed. And for a while, for a short time, that was true. And then we got to Hell in a Cell. And yeah, I was going to say, they Rybacked him. Uh, you know, uh, uh, A, fuck Ryback. But B, yeah, they did. They Rybacked him. They created this perfect situation for the crowd, both their kayfabe audience and the real audience, to really care, to really be invested, to really be wowed by this this force. And then decided that it was so important to lose any semblance of subtlety in the character that it really did so much damage both to the fiend and even to Seth Rollins. Really, it no one came out of that encounter uh, uh, feeling or looking good. And for the sake of it, just in case anyone either doesn't know or doesn't remember, uh, you know what? Because I think it will be more entertaining this way. Joe, why don't you tell everyone what happened? Oh my god. All right, so we get to Hell in a Cell of, I think that was 2019? That seems right. Yeah, 2019. And we have The Fiend, who has not lost a match. I think he's only had a couple, maybe two, three matches by that point. And he's targeting people, and he starts targeting Seth Rollins, who at this point is the universal champion. So I want to make sure that's right. So we get to Hell in a Cell, and we book The Fiend versus Seth Rollins, for the Universal Championship inside of Hell in a Cell. And I don't know if this was the debut of it, 
but this was the red Hell in a Cell. And also, I think this also was one of the first times where they did the red light effect for the entire match, where the entire arena for after the Fiend's entrance, which the lights go out for the Fiend's entrance the same way they did for Bray Wyatt's, the lights would come on in like, instead of just full regular room lighting, they'd be red lights with the crowd in mostly shadow, which was awful. And combined with the red Hell in a Cell and a camera made it impossible to see anything well. But still, you have Bray Wyatt in the match against Seth Rollins, two guys who know how to have a great match, go to tell a story, but you've booked yourself into a corner where The Fiend is the unstoppable force and Seth Rollins, they wanted to keep him as Universal Champion. So what do you do? How do you protect people in a Hell in a Cell match? where there are no rules, no disqualification. The only thing that you can do to win is pinfall or submission in the middle of the ring. And the Fiend, you can't really pin him or submit him. So what do you do? So what did they do? They went ahead and they got Seth Rollins disqualified for use of excessive force when he kept hitting the Fiend in the head with various objects when he was just out on the ground, but kept kicking out of pins. So he took a sledgehammer and sledgehammered him in the head. Just real quick, before the sledgehammer, there were 11 curb stomps, which I believe it took two to beat Lesnar, right? Uh, Two or three. It was two or three. 11 curb stomps, a number of chairs, the toolbox, the ladder, more, and then... I think that's what we're up to now, but I know there was more after. Also, don't forget the comical mallet that The Fiend used on on Rollins. I could could at least live with the comical mallet because it it was this over-the-top, brutal, but comical, like the very dark horror aspect of things where The Fiend could potentially get into that territory if he wanted it to, where the WWE has had a realm where Kane has set people on fire. So you have that area that you can have a wiggle room of, ha ha, it's a dark, it's dark comedy. He whips out this comical mallet and maybe one time it pops like a balloon, but the other time it breaks a guy's back. I, I don't know. You could have done that. But still, Seth Rollins gets disqualified, not referee stoppage, disqualified and thus retains his championship due to referee stoppage for excessive force after sledgehammering the Fiend in the head when the Fiend is down on the ground. To which everybody shits on this finish. Everybody. I think Bray Wyatt shit shit on this finish. Seth Rollins shit on this finish. The Cell itself shit on this finish. Famously, uh, X-Pac Sean Waltman was in a WWE reaction video who shit on this finish live and was probably never asked to come back because... It's the dumbest thing you can do. You, I don't like using the term buried, but you buried the Hell in a Cell match concept by doing this. Don't forget what happened after the bell rang. Oh, yeah. Then the Fiend just gets up. The Fiend. Well, wait, wait. No, first they bring in the paramedics. Then the Fiend gets up and proceeds to almost murder Seth Rollins. Yeah. 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 
You know, which means at no point in time did the ref actually check to see if the fiend was conscious or okay or wanted to continue. Um, you know, rules. Who has those? But it, man, that's what I mean when, and to the people who don't understand the, the situation of the Ryback reference, back during CM Punk's title reign in 2012, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. 2012, CM Punk has this year-long title reign going on and we get to hell in a cell and you have ryback a brand new character who's been around for maybe six months who is getting the goldberg treatment of just running through people as a monster and then all of a sudden you book cm punk versus ryback in hell in a cell and you have ryback the unstoppable monster who it's it's not ready for him to lose he's not ready to be in the title picture and you have CM Punk, the champion, who by all means should lose this match, but he needs to still be champion so he can lose to somebody else later. So what do you do? You come up with a screwy finish inside Hell in a Cell where a referee helps CM Punk win. It kills the character of Ryback. It kills all of his momentum. It makes CM Punk look like a terribly weak champion, the same way Seth Rollins did in this Hell in a Cell. It weakens The Fiend. It weakens Ryback. It weakens the entire structure of the match. Of why did you even have this match when you didn't need to? Which kind of goes back to what we talked about last week with the gimmicked pay-per-views. Which yeah. is also important to what we're discussing tonight because as we're talking about this idea of the, the stage show, these gimmick pay-per-views make a lot more sense in the presentation because that's how it was set up. That's the way that they want their universe to feel because that's the their idea of consistency. Now, I don't want to get too far off of Bray Wyatt because we're not done with that story, unfortunately. He actually does do a pretty decent job of recovering, though, because not immediately, but the strength of the character and the promos and the presentation really did kind of mask a lot of what could have been really harmful fallout if we as a fandom or the kayfabe fandom had been trained to put more stock into what happens in the ring. But like we said, what happens in the ring is, is secondary, maybe even tertiary a lot of the time. So it was easier for us to kind of look past that. And he begins to grow again, right? And you just you see the people sort of coming back to it. But... Now The Fiend, even though the concept was to make The Fiend look more unstoppable, he didn't really. He he looked human, almost, in that moment. And it showed. And so Bray, or creative, probably a mixture of both, sort of pivoted on that and started making Bray Wyatt seem a little less perfect right because the whole character up until that point since his return was supposed to be this smiley happy guy who was you know talking to uh children it really wasn't super clear but it didn't really matter because that's the way it was supposed to work and after that match what was beforehand just this creature that we don't really talk about very much but is there to you know protect us but we also don't want to make angry started also becoming Bray Wyatt 
you you started to see the cracks show up more and he started to be angrier and that's around the time he started killing uh i think when he started killing the rabbit pretty constantly right um with like the mallet and and uh one time he turned him into jam and there's a whole bunch because because the rabbit was you know uh, the fan base right that was that was the whole thing is the rabbit was supposed to represent not the real fan base the kayfabe fan base right with the whole like uh, almost always rooting for the other guy so you sort of saw the second act something we we like to talk about acts right the second act of the fiend and the second act of Bray Wyatt and once again we found ourselves in a situation where he was so perfectly tailored for the product that they were creating that it worked. Even to the point where, and I'll throw in my personal gripes here, when he did eventually win the Universal Championship, he turned it into a face. Hoof. So that happened. But even then, even with the, the questionable championship, and even with some maybe unsteady creative decisions going on, he still kind of was was very full steam ahead. And there was kind of this really interesting lore behind The Fiend, which I thought was great, was losing to The Fiend didn't mean that you lost a wrestling match. It meant something much more important because it it healed you, right? That was the whole real story going on, which I think was the best part of, of the Bray Wyatt story as The Fiend was it wasn't just the surface plot. There was a lot going on under that. The idea that after you faced The Fiend, you would find that version of yourself that you were meant to be. You saw Finn become, you know, the prince. You saw Orton go back to being you know, crazy pants Randy Orton instead of just arrogant Randy Orton. You saw Rollins become the heel again. It happened to everyone because that was kind of the idea. The Fiend would allow you to accept the parts of yourself that you had moved past, usually as a, as a heel, by effectively feeding on the fears that led you to being whoever you had become. And then we had the least subtle character in the history of wrestling. So there will never come a time that I can talk about Goldberg and not get upset. I fucking hate Goldberg. I Let's make this real clear. I want no confusion about this. As a kid, I didn't like Goldberg. As an adult, I don't like Goldberg even more. And it's not just because, you know, they used him as a panic button, like we said, where it was the safe bet, but because from the beginning, it was so very apparent that he wasn't good, right? And that's the difference between him and Lesnar, which is why the comparison and the way that they build them always frustrates me. Brock Lesnar is probably the greatest wrestler in the history of wrestling. I'll say that. And again, it might not be true, but it very well could be. Brock Lesnar, when he wants to, is an expert uh, uh, mat wrestler. He's a fantastic power wrestler. He is so good at making the other guy in the ring look strong. 
master salesman. His only weak spot really is promoing, but they fixed that by realizing that he cuts a really good I'm a person fighter promos, right? The the I specifically the vignettes they did with him having the interviews leading up to the Cena match at SummerSlam where yeah. he they or just, just yeah. Just look at him this last week with Sami Zayn. Oh, yeah. Just look at that of him coming back and being like, the, ha, 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 I can kill you whenever I want to. I'm Brock Lesnar. Yeah. And it's like, all right, fine. And also, screw that being a weakness. They paired him with arguably one of the best promo managers of all time. Maybe all- the best. Yeah, maybe. So, like, and I'm not going to debate that because that's an entire episode to itself. We'll get that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like what weakness? What weakness? Yeah. Um and that's that's the big difference between him and Goldberg is Goldberg was the opposite. Goldberg could say as long as he kept it short, Goldberg could cut those really short promos where it was I'm going to fuck you up and that's it. And it was believable until he got the ring and the bell rang and you're like this guy couldn't fight his way out of a plastic bag. Not even to just wrestle. Like he he couldn't wrestle either. But he couldn't fight his way out of a plastic bag. Goldberg at no point was a believable menace except in that anytime he got in the ring with someone, the cue for the other person was get speared, die, the match will be over. And that was it. And any match that went longer than like five minutes, it was so painfully apparent that he was so out of his depth. And, you know, I don't even necessarily fault him for it because he was a guy who was a mediocre football player who got approached by a major multi-million dollar company that said, we will give you millions of dollars to work 10 minutes a week. 10 minutes a week, and with live shows, probably closer to like, I don't know, four hours a week. Uh, okay, well, uh, who who the fuck is going to turn that down? No one's going to turn that down, and I don't fault them for it. Goldberg could have taken the time to learn the, the the skills necessary and didn't and you know uh we could get into <laughs> we could get into some of that Bret Hart but we won't we won't uh for now at least so when you have specifically Bill Goldberg who they bring back for um one of the blood money brawl events uh over in Saudi Arabia versus the fiend and it's like okay there are two ways this can go either this is the panic button and they're going to put the title back on goldberg so that eventually they can do like him and reigns or him and lesnar or whoever the fuck or this is going to be them finally finally sort of giving us that one moment that we haven't had for bray wyatt yet this is going to be the you will be a main eventer with us forever. You are one of the guys. The Eddie Guerrero moment that he hadn't really ever gotten yet, despite being world champion. And then the match happened, and Goldberg almost killed him. Like, shoot, almost killed him. And it's like, well, on one hand, there is support for this in the story, right? Like we talked about. The whole premise of what makes The Fiend powerful and what The Fiend does is feed on your weaknesses and your fears in order to bring you back to who you need to be. Bill Goldberg has no weaknesses. Bill Goldberg has no fears. He is exactly who he needs to be. So The Fiend cannot stop him. 
but also, you had this... How old was he at the time, do you know? Who, Goldberg? Yeah. Oh, I don't know, but 50s. Yeah, 50, right? 50 plus, literally had like come out uh, earlier in the year and had been like, I'm going to do a couple more matches because I want my son to see me wrestle. Because he wasn't alive when I was wrestling, which, you know, dates himself. But now you've got this guy who arguably has the most support of any active talent at that moment in The Fiend. Going up against the guy who really was relevant to a smaller niche, but in their kayfabe audience was everything. Which is why they did it at Blood Money Brawl, where they knew what the reaction was going to be which is part of what we'll discuss with the audience as a prop. And they effectively put the last, the final nail in the coffin. Uh, well, okay, you know what? I say that because at the time it felt that way. But we also have a stake we have to drive through that coffin, which we'll get to in a bit. Yeah, I was going to say, he wasn't dead yet. He wasn't dead yet. This was not it. It, it felt like it, but it wasn't it yet. Because you still had, right after that, one of the best moments in the entire character with him and Cena. Okay, yes. So, But then, but then after that, they killed him. Yes. Okay, you're right, and that's on me. I have, as we've just discussed, very strong feelings about Goldberg, and I was a huge fan of The Fiend, and I usually love those, like, really abstract characters and I'm a sucker for psychological horror stuff like that I had just done the whole don't hug me I'm scared run and was just enamored with this so yeah you're right they didn't kill him but fuck if it didn't hurt and it hurt more because he didn't ever really need the belt this was this was one of the things that really bothered me and I'm, I'm trying not to turn this into like a gripe fest I really am uh, but I think it's important to note things like this because these are those moments where they do things for their kayfabe audience and either you will be on board with those or you won't. And if you're not, that's too bad because the show's not for you. I'll stop you right there for a sec. For exactly what you just said, before we talked a lot about does the title make the guy or does the guy make the title? And you just said The Fiend in particular is one of those characters much like The Undertaker at various points in time in his career, and I know he had the title almost immediately, but like in a lot of his career, The Undertaker is a guy who did not need the title. Why? Because it's a very unique character where they are not a wrestler. They are not motivated the same way wrestlers are motivated by wins and losses. They are motivated by something else. And for the fiend, it is doing whatever he does, and we never really fully got to see what that is because they didn't develop it the way it was. That he was thrust into the title picture way too soon. The same way Ryback, way too soon. It's like, but with Ryback, it could have been a thing of the title would have made him. In this situation, let's say the fiend did win the title, which he did like only a month or two after that Hell in a Cell match. So it wasn't like this long period of time. So why they didn't just commit at Hell in a Cell is beyond anybody. But The draft. Sure. <laughs> but still, regardless of that, it became this thing of, okay, when he wins the title, does he make the title or does the title make him? Neither. Why? Because these two things are oil and water. They don't mix. They're just, okay, you have this demon almost 
holding the title, but he does he care about the title? I don't know. He's never mentioned it. It, it has nothing to do with his character or his motivations whatsoever. So he's having wrestling matches, but he's having wrestling matches to hurt people or to change them or to heal them or whatever it is his character is doing that I want to see. But it's never getting explained because now all of his matches are about this championship. And he doesn't seem to care about the championship like that. But like, there's interesting things I think bring up about The Undertaker and his history with the championship, which is very unique and interesting of like what happens when a zombie holds the championship. But with The Fiend, it, it was this thing where, yeah, he changed the title and it became the face and it was weird, but even that could have been cool if they leaned into it. But it felt like a half step. It felt like, oh, we botched the ending of Hell in a Cell so badly that we have to course correct and give him the championship because we can't have him lose twice. But then it became the thing of like, well, the Fiend is champion is the thing and people like the Fiend is champion apparently, so we got to keep making the Fiend champion or giving him championship matches. Oh, wait, we put him in championship match. We can't have him lose, so we have to have him win. So that means he's champion. Oh, he can't be champion forever. He has to lose to somebody. Who does he lose to? Oh, no. And so you keep booking yourself into a corner over and over again because you made this one really bad decision. <laughs> and it does go back to the thing of, does the title make the guy or does the guy make the title? Even if they're both props, which one are you positioning in which situation? And when you put these two together, they don't fit. But they tried to do it anyway. It's a problem. I could not agree more. Absolutely. And... It was one of those things that could have very easily been avoided if they had continued on the path that they had been going on. And it was it was still Rollins he beat, right? For the for the yep. title when he won it. And yeah. they could have they could have left it on Rollins and they still could have done Goldberg Rollins and that would have been fine if they wanted to put the title back on Goldberg. If they wanted to if they wanted to leave it with Rollins. Either way, it would have been fine. And the Fiend could have done quite literally anything else and avoided that. But again, we're not here to to you know do that. We're we're here for a different reason, and we're gonna we're gonna follow that. So after that was was Braun. Right? No, Braun was after no, was Cena. Cena. I'm sorry, it was Cena. That yeah, was, was the Cena. lead up to it. Yeah. My goodness, I'm. It gets so hard sometimes just because of, of well, that that moment particularly felt really disjointed. And... Also, that was the rough period when we we're learning about covid and then everything started going into yeah. no fans and stuff so it became oh he's gonna have a match with cena that nobody's gonna see mm-hmm. so they were cinematic with it which turned into this amazing piece of art that yeah go rave yeah oh, man okay so i uh, we've spent a lot a lot of time on bray and i don't want to spend the next hour that i want to spend talking about this but i remember when we when that WrestleMania happened, uh, and we we have a, a group chat that we're a part of, and man, that even figuring out where to start is just so great because that that whole night had felt kind of off, you know. Yeah, COVID COVID was COVID, and things were were still pretty uncertain and uncomfortable, and a lot of things were going on on a lot of different axis axes axi that. <laughs> That had made things weird. And then you had the no fan show that was WrestleMania. And there were some weird decisions at that show too. But 
going into that match, it was like, okay, what the fuck is this going to be? Because the whole build-up to it had felt so strange and was kind of concerning because coming off of the Bray Wyatt-Goldberg story, you immediately go into someone who, for a lot of people, John Cena is the reason that Bray Wyatt is not the megastar that they feel like he should have been. And again, I'm not one of those people who's going to sit here and say it was John Cena's fault. It, it wasn't. But he was definitely, he, the superstar, was definitely a big proponent of that in the WWE universe as far as how Bray Wyatt was concerned. Not in the direct kayfabe, but in the secondary kayfabe that was their kayfabe fandom was, you know, the the John Cena ruined Bray Wyatt's career. And now you've got Cena returns and he is confronted by The Fiend. And... The Fiend is supposed to be, I don't want to say a protector exactly of sorts for Bray, but something like that. He's a force that exists because Bray needs him, right? That's the whole concept from, from Bray's side. And John Cena is the man who hurt him the most. Uh, second most, because Randy Orton's the man who hurt him the most, and we'll get to that too. But John Cena is the guy who hurt his career the most so the build-up to that was so interesting where you had again the rabbit who was like oh john cena is the best and the firefly funhouse stuff that would happen felt a lot stranger and a lot more unsettling and a lot more off because this was bray wyatt who was more the fiend than bray wyatt who really wanted john cena because everything he had said about john cena when they feuded the first time was true everything he had called him and pointed out when he was still you know the swamp father when he was the guy talking about how the people are sheep and they don't understand it john cena being the megastar that he he had become had done nothing but prove him right and so here was this opportunity and they they took it and in what was like you said a, a piece of artwork i I adore this, and I watch it very often. I will never forget us being on the chat and it starting, and just the sheer insanity that was the Firefly Funhouse match that really was the amalgamation of the John Cena career concept meeting the denouncement and decrying of the fandom and Bray picking at everything that the kayfabe and the real audience had been saying for years about John, about Bray, about what their careers were and what they meant in such a perfect way that felt so powerful and I remember beforehand the concern. Does Cena beat him again? Cena doesn't come around very often, and it's Cena, and we know what they do with Bray, and he's coming off of Goldberg. And I remember as this is going on, I'm like, this doesn't have to have an ending, really. No one has to win in the conventional sense, because what he's doing now is winning. But they did something that I would argue is better than if he had just pin John Cena 
he broke him. He did what he failed to do the first time. And they did the 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 like direct callback with the chair, right? Where Bray had given him the chair and was like, hit me. That's all you have to do is hit me and I win. And Cena didn't do it. And this time he did. And it didn't pay off. And then the fiend put puts in the claw and he puts him to sleep. And then John Cena is gone. And we didn't see him again for a long time. And he, to his credit, sold it pretty strong. Like his Instagram got weird for a little while and his social media. Like he 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 committed. And it was maybe one of it's up there for me at least with like the hangman thing where it's like one of those perfect moments in wrestling where I can't imagine it having been done better than the way it was. And I remember it ended and then we were messaging and it was just like, holy shit, that was so powerful. And another great example of when they allow it to happen, they have people who perfectly fit this medium. And when you create this stage show for wrestling, it can be an incredible, amazing product. And it doesn't always have to be that way. Um, you you could see other versions of it in, like, Impact with Matt Hardy, right? They did the, the Deletion series, which was more of these really out there, very unique, very different shows that were the heart of wrestling, but weren't in any way wrestling, even when they had wrestling in them. And that was so interesting to see. And it's another great example of stage show wrestling. It can work. It can work so well. And it can work when you take it to its uh, arguably insane uh, abstract conclusion with stuff like the Firefly Funhouse match or the Ultimate Deletion or any of these things. And it was the perfect example of that. And then they did it again with uh, Styles and Taker, which was another perfect example of that. They really knocked it out of the park with those. They were great. And that WrestleMania was, for me, even with all of the, like, weird decisions, questionable misses, was definitely a situation where it felt good from the perspective of... This is our product, and we are sports entertainment, and these are not people. These are not even just characters. These are superstars. So from there, we saw more growth from The Fiend as he, you know, made his uh, next challenge was Braun Strowman, who had just won the title. And immediately there's that concern again of we're putting The Fiend back in the title picture. But at the same time, he was so strong coming off of that that it felt okay. If he wins, okay, he wins. If he loses, okay, he loses. And they did the right thing in making the title completely irrelevant to the plot of Strowman uh, Wyatt. Completely irrelevant. That was, a, that was a great match, too. As a wrestling fan, it was, it was not a good match. As a sports entertainment fan, that was fantastic. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that match or or the Firefly Funhouse match. No, it's okay. The Firefly Funhouse match, as I said before, that was a, a work of art. Yeah. That is something where it is the that that last picture directed by someone who just pours their heart and soul into something where it's like this is it. This is the the final one. I've got nothing left in the tank. 
here you go. I, I spilled it all out there, you know, and take it for what you will. You may not love it. You may absolutely adore it, but this is what I did. Right. And going from there, like, I know a lot of people were not a fan of the Bray and Braun matches that came out of that. Personally, I was like, okay, I, I don't need every single match that they do with him to be like this cinematic thing. I also understand because of COVID, there's only so much you can do. And they leaned heavily into one side versus the other. I'm also somebody who was like, please, why why do you keep putting him in the title picture? Why? Sure, yeah. <laughs> you have all of these people you can work with, and yet you're still like, no, the title picture, that's where he has to go. Which leads into the thing of, this is in the middle of last year, and then word comes out of... Ray Wyatt, The Fiend, is the top merch seller in WWE. So it starts making sense why he's in the title picture. Because that's where you put somebody who is selling all the merch. You put them in the title picture. Why? Because people will pay. So uh, the one thing I do want to point out here. So I had forgotten this one part, which uh, will uh, force me to make an almost immediate retraction. So I really enjoyed a lot of the buildup and a lot of the setup and stuff. But the Swamp match, I was painfully terrible. I okay. had I had forgotten I had forgotten about that match. I had completely wiped it from my memory, um, and for reasons that I, I you'll probably get to uh, as you move forward, there are other reasons why this particular storyline is so bad. Yeah. Well, when you get to SummerSlam and then Roman Reigns returns, and and then they have like the triple threat matches and stuff. I think those are the ones that are much better because it goes back into more like the, hey, you get a bunch of big guys in the ring together who can really go, all right, they're going to, you know, put on a show for you. But before that, the one with the, with Braun straight up, the, the Swamp match is the one I'm returning. I forget if they had one before that or after that. Yeah, they had They had one match before that with Bray as Bray where he comes out and he does the, the sheep mask. Okay. Yeah, those, the ones that were more like the storytelling. Yes. Instead of the, this is supposed to be a match in a swamp where it had the weird, ambiguous ending thing, and Uh it it was just strange. But the ones before that, the storytelling pieces, I agree with you. They were there. Personally, I'm not a fan of when you have a champion, and then you start telling stories with this champion that have nothing to do with them being champions. Not a fan of that. I think it can happen on occasion, and that's fine. But you had Braun, who just won the title. And you have Bray, who very recently was involved in the title picture, and it was a big negative thing for months. So why are you going back to this? That's kind of where I was in this. So coming out of that, so you have him and Braun. And little did we know at that point, the beginning of the end. Alexa Bliss. This is not her fault. Nothing that happens from here on out is her fault. Nothing that happens before or afterwards is her fault. And I feel the need to make that clear because unfortunately there are a lot of people who don't get that. But Alexa Bliss became a part of the storyline. And it for a while it was pretty entertaining. There was a weird Beauty and the Beast thing because they had been doing the mixed tag for the last, I think, two years leading up to that. 
and they, they you know they were fun together her and her and braun it was it was it was fun but you know they started teasing that he had a thing for her um which you know whatever classic wrestling uh, we could we could talk for hours about whether or not that's a dated concept that has no real place anymore but whatever it doesn't matter either way he literally kidnaps her but then she shows up again and is okay and then he and 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 this is where really things started to kind of fall apart which was a shame uh and again we're still not at the kiss of death but we have started we have started our our journey because as it often felt when uh like like you said when the product is really good it's great but when it's not it can get really bad and this was one of those situations where you had something that had gone really strong really strong really strong had dipped pretty hard with the Goldberg thing and then won back our our trust and our interest with with the Firefly Funhouse and then this thing with Braun that was whatever and then Alexa and it was disjointed and it didn't always make a lot of sense and it wasn't just in that way that it's like oh I wonder what's going to happen from here how are they going to explain this but it was in those very you know, WWE ways where it's like, okay, well, we're just going to have to accept this because this is what their audience accepts. And if we're watching this product, we have to accept it too. So uh, he kidnaps Alexa Bliss and then they kind of become friendly, but they don't start doing anything with them right away. After she, like, takes his hand and they kind of fuck off, she just isn't around for a bit, um, which is when they start doing the... Oh, that's when The Fiend gets drafted, right? He gets drafted back to Raw. And on Raw, now he finds his his rival, his the man who hurt him the most, Randy Orton. And again, this was a great opportunity to do so much and to have so much weight... And Bray had been sort of teasing this for months leading up to it. There were and, and in small ways. It wasn't it was it was all the subtleties, right? Like he had he had, had up since the beginning the picture um that was like a hand drawn version of the, the barn burning down from when Orton destroyed the compound and there were little there was like a, a if I remember correctly, there was one time there was like a little viper picture somewhere in a thing and Bray had kept putting up pictures when whenever he had been feuding with people and the funhouse was getting more chaotic and there was things he said that were very clearly him kind of calling out to Randy and letting him know that it was coming and just the whole the whole thing was again a perfect example of the stage show version of of wrestling the the sports entertainment which I don't really want to call it that because I don't think that's the only way to do that particular programming but that's kind of what this was it was it was the stage show so we have the fiend face off with Randy Orton in a inferno match was that the first one I forget if that was the first one I completely forget the order of these things because this is in a time period when I fell off of WWE hard. 
Okay. I know, I know where we got to though. Eventually, it did turn into them, and the stipulation is fire. Yes, the stipulation is fire, and there's only so many ways this match can go, especially when you recognize that one of them is a guy wrestling in a full, you know, horror character suit, and the other one wrestles in trunks. And lo and behold, the fiend was burned alive. And, you know, again, to their credit, even though the camera cuts could have been better, they fully took advantage of not having a live crowd and used that as an opportunity to swap him out for a dummy and and just let it burn. Which, I'm also going to use this as an opportunity to point out some other things they did which were absolutely brilliant, like the introduction of Crash Mats. Um, which allowed them to do certain spots that they hadn't been able to do. Like going back to WrestleMania for a second. <sighs> there was that triple threat ladder match for the tag oh, yeah. team titles that only had one of each tag team because COVID. <sighs> but there was there was one or two. I forget if there were two, but I know there was at least one really crazy spot in that match that couldn't have happened otherwise, right? They're, yeah, because somebody would be dead or in the hospital or something. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so there, there were some, some pretty cool utilizations of that, which is, again, the upside of stage show wrestling. Um, so you have, you have Bray Wyatt, The Fiend, now completely burned and destroyed for the time being, and Randy goes on about his, his stuff. And then Alexa Bliss returns and starts going after Randy, which for me, pretty exciting. I am a big fan of intergender wrestling. I understand it's not for everyone or for every circumstance, but I was cool with it, uh, especially for the story they were telling, because again, this particular kind of storytelling can also lend itself to that sort of match, which they've done fairly well over time, even if a lot of them have been comedy, like with uh, James Ellsworth and uh, Santino. But it's it's still something that you get that you don't always get otherwise. So uh, he returns as this just grotesque, disfigured, burned monster to challenge Randy and save Alexa. And really, it while not being as strong as it had been previously, still felt like a really strong story that was being told. And this brings us all the way to the next WrestleMania with him and Brandy in a match that had um, weird, but it, it was a strange match. It was a strange match, which I think falls into the cons column of not knowing how to utilize being a staged show because we had these weird projections on the mat and they, they just sort of went in a weird direction with it. I'm really reluctant to say whose decision it was. But it happened the way it did. And ultimately, uh, Alexa started to bleed black ichor and she kind of turned on the fiend and Orton picked up the win, which was a weird decision. But from here, I'm kind of just going to get to the the end of this, this story, kind of, because this is this is what ends up happening is. Because we create a situation where the talent are props, we foster a concept that these, like you said, characters can be slotted into statues as needed. 
And ultimately, that was the very disappointing ending of The Fiend, where this guy who was literally everything that they wanted and needed, who had done everything that they they possibly could have used him for up until that point, now effectively handed off the gimmick to Alexa Bliss and then was never seen again until he was, you know, sent packing. And she became this, what felt like a, a very bargain bin version of the character because it was missing a lot of the heart that had come with that. And this is where I think it's important to point out something else about stage show wrestling. Stage show wrestling, in the context I'm using it in here, you don't need to treat your talent like props in order to pull it off. There are there are pros to it, absolutely. Um, you get stuff like with Emelina and Carmella, where the, the Emelina gimmick was, was doomed from the beginning, and Emma was at no point the 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 actress. Let's let's use that term here to differentiate. Was at no point the actress to put that character on, and they tried, and it immediately failed so badly that you know she was on TV once I think, and they were like, okay, we get it, we fucked up, whatever, unplug it, and then a year or two later I think uh, I don't remember the timeline super well, we just plugged it into Carmela, and you know what? For a while it worked. It worked really well because as an actress, Carmela was better at presenting that particular, you know, character, that superstar that they wanted. And there are upsides like that where you can literally go, okay, this didn't work, so we'll we'll put it to the side and we'll recast it. But the con is if you're not careful with it, you end up with stuff like the fiend becoming Alexa Bliss. And Lily, the weird doll thing, and it sort of falls apart, and in doing so, cheapens everything else that was a part of that. I forget how many months it was. I don't know if you remember. It was, wait, until Alexa disappears? Alexa's uh, gone after, I think, SummerSlam? Sure. After they've transitioned the gimmick. Yeah. How long was it before we got the news that Bray was let go? Oh, uh, two or three months, I think. Okay, so so let's let's say it was three months for the sake of argument. So yeah, it would have to be about three months. Yeah. Oh, okay. So three months later, the guy who up until they replaced his him with a different actress was their highest merchandise seller. Was as as far as they can they considered it. And their kayfabe audience considered it bulletproof. Let go. This is the other problem sometimes with treating your talent like props. They felt confident that they had gotten what they needed out of him. And could utilize that gimmick elsewhere as needed. And so they sent him on his way. And this episode is not really going to be... Or hasn't been. It's hard to say going to be now two hours in. But isn't going to be about all of these releases and ethical business practices. But it's definitely worth stating that this is a con that a company can fall... There's a pun there, by the way. But this is a con that a company can fall into by treating their talent like props. You start to see them as props and thus completely replaceable and interchangeable. Yeah, there's not too much more to say. It's very unfortunate that when you look back at 
specifically the career of Bray Wyatt as the Fiend, there isn't much to say in terms of what he accomplished. And that's sad because he had one of the most memorable debuts in ever, maybe. Has a couple of matches, one of the worst endings to a pay-per-view ever. Two title reigns, I think, that are completely uneventful. And one of a, a, a work of art WrestleMania moment. That's not a match, it's a moment. And then he's gone. And that's, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about that. And I know that we're framing this with the whole, how do you present the show? But it is very much that thing of, if your characters are not allowed to be dynamic, if they are things where you are putting on a show and you're casting actors to play roles, but the roles are predetermined. They're not based on the actor. That's the difference here, right? Where you're casting a person and their role in AEW. Like they have a gimmick already. Maybe they develop it there, they change it there, but they're allowed to grow and change there. In WWE, it's here is your role, play it. And if you don't play it, we will get somebody else to play it if we still want to use that role. And you can see how where that succeeds and fails. And there have been moments where that succeeds. This one, unfortunately, succeeded a bit in terms of merch sales and connecting because people certainly connected with The Fiend, but ultimately it failed. Why? Because it needed to grow, it needed change, and the guy playing the role was the right guy to play the role and would have grown it into something that I wish I could have seen. But you didn't use it because you you, you didn't use it in the right way. You absolutely wanted it to be in certain spots at certain times, and it couldn't be that. So it didn't work. And then the next part of what I want to discuss pertaining to wrestling as a stage show is the audience as as a prop, right? Which I understand might be a weird way to refer to it. We could say they're extras. That That's a way to do it too. But if we acknowledge that, especially with the WWE's specific style of it, the crowd that is there, the live crowd, is not their audience. Their audience is the kayfabed home audience. Then these people are effectively extras. They're trying to create these reactions through alternative means. They're not looking to necessarily pop the crowd when they can take alternatives like filtering in crowd noise or muting the crowd when they feel like their reactions aren't reflective of what they want. Uh, We saw it a lot with the first major Roman Reigns run, which was obviously, I would say, a pretty negative way to have portrayed it only because of... I, I don't think anyone would disagree about that first one being a colossal failure for Roman, even though he, you know, eventually did get over on it. Uh, but you also have... You, you also only have to look at the COVID shows where they didn't have an audience when they went to the, the Thunderdome and we got the screens, which, by the way, what a cool concept. Very awesome to look at. 
so great, uh, even in execution for a while. You got to see some really cool, unique stuff. People were trolls sometimes, and that was funny too. There was one or two times where we got some AEW guys in that crowd, which was dope. Uh, o- overall, I think it was it was pretty pretty cool. But one of the things that happened was they realized they could use that as an opportunity to double down on controlling the kayfabe crowd, turning their fans into extras in their show. So you had the the boos and the cheer signs that would pop up on your computer, the thumbs up, the thumbs downs, and, you know, the automated noise that surrounded it. And if you weren't responding in the way that they wanted you to, much like an extra, you would be removed. And they were pretty selective with this, and they got more selective over time. Uh, I forget what the term was they had for people who they let do it, because there was like a... It was some kind of gimmicky name, but effectively they were extras. And even though we have people back now, they still kind of are doing that. We've had a lot more of these uh, uh, forced crowd reactions than previously, and we've still had our crowd muted here and there. There have been times where you can pretty clearly see the crowd being tired or disinterested, but roaring, raucous cheers throughout the arena. Uh, And some of the ways that they've gone about fixing this lately has been using, you know, more seat fillers. We've heard, you know, a lot of things about that. Uh, There was that leaked clip recently uh, that's been making its rounds, which was pretty cool. Like, we, we, we know that they do it. Almost every company and almost every sport does it. It's not new or surprising, but it was cool to get that little bit of insight. Uh... But it's another way that they're effectively turning their live crowd into extras as opposed to an audience because that's not their audience. They're not playing to that crowd most of the time, at least. Yeah, and they've been out of sync with it for years, right? And at least a good, like, 10-ish years, maybe 15. I think Cena was one of the big ones where you really started to see the disconnect. And... It's fine. It's fine that there's some disconnect. There's always going to be some dissent. There's no hundred zeros. It's usually like, even for the biggest baby faces of all time, it's 95, five. There's going to be the five people who are like, I don't care. I'm cheering the heel. There will always be somebody to boo hangman. Exactly. Somebody. There's always someone. And that's okay. It's just normally there's been over the years. Let's not go back too far, but early 2000s, late 90s even, there's the idea that, okay, we have our audience that we have the kayfabe audience that you're saying, where it's, this is their extras. They're part of the script, so to speak. Like we expect this reaction from them because they're part of the show. But then it usually lined up because the characters that you're using, you were telling the stories where people legitimately did line up with those interests. They said, hey, we do want to root for Stone Cold Steve Austin. We do want to boo Vince McMahon. You know, we are cheering Eddie Guerrero to win the championship. We are booing Brock Lesnar. Things like that. And then John Cena comes around. John Cena, when he won the title, was very much the person who was being cheered in sync with what they wanted or they expected. And then it became this thing of, eh, is he... Is he the guy that we want? Is he the guy that we're cheering for? 
And then, of course, you get to the Let's Go Cena, Cena sucks, and all of that stuff, which became its own thing. And then you keep going with that, and you turn into the 2010s, and you start seeing more and more people push to the forefront of the stories where the crowd at home goes to shows and says, eh, I've seen the crowds on TV boo this guy. I'm going to boo this guy too, because I don't like this guy. And the crowds on TV are telling me they don't like this guy either. And so you start to see more and more of the disconnect and you can go on Twitter and see the disconnect and you can go on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, any of the dirt sheets or whatever, and you see the disconnect. So that the crowd gets more and more split and the pie chart has more and more slices into it of, am I indifferent? Am I booing? Am I cheering? Am I like giving a standing ovation to this person? And you keep going with stuff like that to the point where it's getting harder for them to predict it. And that's okay too, but it breaks the reality that they've established for themselves of this is what it is. And it's not that way anymore. Well, it's really good that you brought up John Cena because uh, if for lack of a better term, he is maybe the the nexus of all of this, right? 2006 is the year that Twitter is invented. Uh, or founded, rather. And just having that sort of social media allowed for a much quicker, much more widespread reaction of people and for a way that fans of wrestling were able to, like you said, get this understanding of we can respond to the people, maybe not in the way that you always want us to. Yeah, 2006, also the year the iPhone came out, I believe. So, like... Putting that in perspective, you start getting people with access to the internet in their pocket. So they can go to a wrestling show and right away be able to like tell somebody or even show somebody what the hell happened, what's going on. So, you know, just that era of the internet. So by the time you're getting to like that Cena year long title reign, like a lot is changing very quickly. Yeah. And so looking at it now, the the John Cena that we, ha- I was going to say have now, but had for the last, uh, I'd say even the last five, six, seven years, isn't the same John Cena we had back then where he he very much near near the ending years of his run leaned into this concept of, well, they cheer me well, they boo me, some of them love me, some of them hate me, and you know what, I fucking love it all. But for those couple of years at the beginning when we did have, like, the year-long Cena reign and the, like, terror uh, that that was John Cena for some people, you have this, like you said, this disconnect where it's, like, the commentary, the uh, guys in the back, the other baby faces, uh, John Cena himself was treating him like he was the biggest, whitest meat meaty baby face in the world and that that was the case and every so often a heel would maybe point out see they hate you and everyone else would be like no what the fuck are you talking about it's John Cena yeah except for the crowds who were very split and I think that that was one of the the biggest moves that they made towards the stage show wrestling where and like sure they've done it before but usually we've kind of swayed back, whereas here we've only continued to lean into it, 
where it's like, okay, well, the crowds don't agree with us, but that's okay. Keep pushing the narrative. Keep pushing that narrative. He's the hustle, loyalty, and respect. He's the top guy. He's the fighter. He's the superhero. He's that guy. And one of the ways that I think it benefited them, because, you know, we could argue again until the cows come home about whether it was an upside or a downside overall, but one of the ways it really benefited them was Edge. By creating, by using the title as a prop, which we talked about earlier, all these pieces are about to come together, by the way, but by using the title as a prop and using their talent as props to tell these stories, they were able to take a guy like Edge, who was just right there, he was right there, and turn him into arguably one of the biggest heels of the company at the time, and and in a way that made people really love to hate him, because that's the other thing they did. Edge got cheered a bunch, sure, because he was facing Cena, but when you put him against other faces, it wasn't the same reaction. They were able to turn their audience into organic props by having this back-and-forth belt dance with him and Cena, making him insufferable outside of that, and then pitting him against people we, as the fans, actually cared about. You know, like him and Jeff Hardy was a really great example of, of one of those stories where it was like, it's so hard to cheer for you because you are the worst because of everything you did when you were facing John Cena and how it carries on now. So the talent became props for making this story happen. The The crowd became props for making the story happen. The, the, ta- the championship was a prop. Uh, everything involved. And I think that that's a really important moment in like seeing that. And there, there were other opportunities where it happened on a smaller scale. But that's the first time that I can remember in, in the last decade being like more than a decade, maybe. I forget what years those were. But I can remember being like, oh, ho, ho, shit. This is what they're doing. This is wrestling as a stage show. This is them creating this dramatic uh, thing by utilizing all these pieces that exist for the sake of doing this specifically as opposed to like wrestling as a sport or pro wrestling as as pro wrestling, wink. Uh, and I think that for better or worse, that's one of the things that And I think that it's something really interesting about wrestling is how many different forms the medium can take and how you can go about utilizing any of those forms. And Cena really was their moment where I think they also realized, oh shit, we can just do this. And they did, and they've continued to for a long time, and they've leaned into it pretty hard, uh, sometimes against you know, fan reaction, but that's okay because their crowds are not their audience anymore. And I think uh, we've been going on for uh, almost two hours now. (laughs) Only. (laughs) So I think that we're going to have to wrap this episode up, but stay tuned for next week for part two where we're going to get into the concepts of wrestling as a sport and the more, like, Impact or AEW presentation of pro wrestling, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and really dissect those. And Cody, we, we definitely got to talk about Cody, because he's going to fit so well into all of this. 
And that's so exciting. So, if you've enjoyed taking this journey with us, remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, follow us wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. You can reach out to us on Twitter, either to myself at TheLionKnight42, or you can now follow us on Twitter at SquaredCircleSD. So for myself and Joan, thanks for listening.